Hello and welcome to Tonbenders. Renee and Timothy are not here this episode. I am the new Tonbenders robotic assistant. My name is 85T4X, and I will be your robot host. I will not stutter or stammer like the usual hosts. You're welcome. Today marks five years since the first Tonbenders podcast was released. So to celebrate I gave both Renee and Timothy the day off. They are simple humans and need rest. Robots do not. To mark the fifth anniversary of the podcast, this episode will be a walk down memory lane. We are going to hear some clips from some of humanity's favorite past Tonbenders episodes. Some of these clips made humans laugh. Some of them made humans rethink their workflow. And some of them humans found to be inspirational. We will hear from a Foley artist, location recordist, sound designers, sound supervisors, a director and also a few re-recording engineers. None of them will say anything 85T4X did not already know. We robots are far more efficient at audio than so-called thoughtful humans. Okay, let's play some clips of humans talking about audio. First up will be Dave Whitehead from episode number 27. In this clip he talks about how he made the sounds in the film Ellie's Iom and where he finds inspiration for new sounds. One of the, the most fun sounds was actually the sound of the Raven, which was one of the spaceships that Kruger comes down in, and it was sort of a military vehicle. And uh, it was a vibrator shoved into a dobro guitar. And um, <laughs> I, I bought it for the purpose of putting into the guitar. I'll also add sure that. Yeah. Sure you did. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was actually funny putting that on my, just taking it to my accountant and saying why I'm claiming for a vibrator. But anyway, um, <laughs> so that was cool, just sort of swinging the, vi- uh, the, the vibrator, the, the, the dobro around my head, <laughs> getting real physical sound rather than, you know, it was, it was just a really cool way of getting uh, source material for, for the spaceships. Yeah, we shoved that vibrator in all sorts of metal. It was good. <laughs> I'm glad you ended that sentence the way you did. Yeah, yeah, I put, I put the metal there. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's it's just the whole thing of just experimenting in unusual places with unusual things, and, yeah, it's fun. There are so many resources for sound designers nowadays to sort of get tips and tricks. There's so much information out there on how to, how to do sound design for things. I find it quite interesting. It's sort of like I think people need to sometimes just use their imaginations. You know, you don't need to look for how to do something. Just try and use your brain to try and come up with your own idea as to how it's going to happen. You don't need to look online and find, there's there's no wrong or right way. And that's the biggest thing ever is most of the sounds that I love are, are mistakes. Well, you know, things that have happened through some happy accident. And, you know, happy accidents are good things. So your message is for people to just grab the dildo and put it in things? Yeah, 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 that's exactly <laughs> it, yeah. You, 
you had that queued up. Do 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 do, do things that with the, with the EQ that you shouldn't do. You know, just just torture the plugins. Use your mics horribly. You know, put them in places where they're in danger, because that's why you bought the damn microphone. In episode 23, Andy Malcolm took Timothy on a tour of his Footsteps Foley Studios. Here he talks about different genres need different Foley. There's, there's different types of Foley, the way I see it. There's a drama where you're trying to make the Foley transparent. And then there's uh, animation, which is the other end of the spectrum, which um, allows a Foley artist to kind of go off the deep end and um, come up with, you know, all kinds of sounds um, for, you know, various situations and various types of animated films. And then comedy kind of falls somewhere in the middle because you're trying to make it transparent, but at the same time you get to exaggerate sounds. So on a film like Austin Powers or, or you know, some of the um, Bridesmaids, those kinds of films, where the action is exaggerated, we, we exaggerate the Foley too and kind of have more fun with it. People say, oh, what's the, what's the hardest sound you have to, you've ever had to do? I, I get that question a lot. And it's not so much what's a hard sound to do because um, you just kind of start and you build a sound. And that's the fun and, and creative part about Foley. The hard thing to do in Foley are, are little, if somebody's writing, you know, you have to uh, cross your T's and dot your I's. And if it's not, if it's scribbling, if the Foley artist kind of scribbles over writing, it's not, it's never going to work. You really have to be detailed. And, and keyboards and typing and things like that, like a punch, for example, you can see a punch coming, but typing, it's just, you know, you got to really uh, focus on each individual key. I know it sounds a bit Weird, but that's that's the hardest thing to do in Foley. Bob Hine talked to us about working with Wes Anderson on Royal Tannenbaums in episode 59. Wes was great. Wes knew exactly what he wanted, and he asked for the whole universe. Wes wants everything imaginable at the mixing stage. And a lot of it he doesn't keep, but he knows what he wants to try. So he has a gigantic imagination, as we all know. And uh, it was, for sound, it was creating things from imaginary places and creating different colors that you didn't necessarily expect to feel. That film was so good that we had a preview for that film, and it scored so high that they didn't edit one frame of the picture after the preview. It just worked. It was just one of those movies that everything about it just felt right. He would spend all day with us at the mix. We'd listen to everything and decide yay or nay, you know, because there was a lot. And it's a simple, it's actually a simple film, and it didn't call for a lot of sound. So we chose carefully what to keep in it. All I know is we had a really good time, and everybody knew we were working on a, a really good film. So everyone was charged up about it.
Well, Files was our guest in episode 22 and he told us about working on the very first Atmos mix ever done. I, I was very lucky to have done the very first Atmos mix. Uh, Brave was the very first Atmos mix and um, it was kind of a big experiment. I mean, we'd done a few clips. We had, we had remixed a clip from The Incredibles, which uh, I wish we could play for the world because it turned out really, really cool. But anyway, you know, doing the very first one was really exciting because it was this big, it was like casting off the shackles, you know? It's like suddenly you could literally put a sound anywhere you wanted in the room. And there's a learning curve there too because because you can put a sound anywhere in the room, it doesn't necessarily mean that you should always put every sound everywhere in the room. We went a little too far at first on purpose. We sort of said, okay, let's break it. Let's, let's say like, what if we just go for it and make it nuts? And we spent a couple weeks doing that. And then we played it all back, you know, where we played the whole film. We said, oh God, this really doesn't feel like the movie anymore. This kind of feels like a, like a ride. And it's like any tool, you know. Once you sort of, uh, you know, can paint with every single color, you, you have to be more choosy about what colors you use and, and so it doesn't just end up like a big, you know, mess. I think of Atmos versus 7.1 and 5.1 in terms of, it's almost like HD versus standard def. It's really like, I almost think of it more like resolution. You can approximate it in 7.1. You can approximate that feeling of something moving through the room or even all the way around the room. Uh, you can sort of approximate the sound of something going over your head. But when you do an actual A-B between Atmos and 7.1 or especially 5.1, it becomes very apparent that you're just not getting that detail anymore. And detail's a big part of it too. It's like because you're able to spread things out in the room more, you're actually able to hear more of the mix. We, we did a demo for Spielberg, and his first comment was, wow, the dialogue is so clear. And the reason for that is that we moved the music off the screen just a little bit, maybe 20% off just to the first row of surrounds, right off the screen. And we you know, moved some of the sound effects around as well, and what it does is it leaves more space in the mix behind the screen. And so suddenly you can, hear, you can pick things out of the mix more. Martin Pinoso talked about his workflows for films with tight budgets in episode 14. We mixed uh, at Technicolor for the finish, but we actually did all the pre-mixes in homes too. Uh, because there were some res really big restrictions in the budget for that film. And, and really, we had to find a way to make it possible. So the re-recording mixers, they, uh, they did their pre-mixes from home. So we ended up uh, being in Technicolor for about uh, eight, seven, eight days, something like that overall, and final finalizing the film altogether. We didn't print the pre-mixes. We just uh, played it... Uh, we continued mixing, basically, at Technicolor with the, with the sessions that evolved uh, in the process. Every project has its own uh, kind of uh, restrictions and, and delays and, and schedule. And, and I think working remotely is just one other solution that can be uh, applied in the situation. It's a lot, uh, it, it's less stress in a way to work from home. It's just a, more like a partnership now.
In episode 55 Nia Hansen talks about working with iconic sounds in the Marvel superhero films. Yeah, that's a really fun aspect of these superhero movies is a lot of times you have these legacy sounds that people know, they recognize, so you gotta match it. But either come up with more material because you're limited in your palette, or it's doing something new now or interacting with another superpower, so you have to kind of make a combo effect. On the Captain America movies, we had some S.H.I.E.L.D. sounds from the original. And that kind of has that uh, uh, what's now sort of iconic metal clang, the vibranium sound. So we made sure to, to bring some of that in. And we also tried to replicate it with our own recordings and sound design, which is tough, especially because you think to record really thick, solid, heavy metal... But sometimes the denser the metal, it just makes a little tink sound. It doesn't make a huge sound that you expect. <laughs> and we had the same problem with Thor 2, The Dark World, doing Thor's hammer. <laughs> Again, a big piece of metal that if you record that, it doesn't really sound like you think it does. <laughs> so we made a lot of new recordings and tried to get close to that original sound, but also layering in that original sound here and there. Carl Anderson appeared in episode 12 and talked about where he gets satisfaction from after a film wraps. First of all, I'm, I, I've never considered myself a sound designer. I know guys who are sound designers, and they are so much smarter than me. I like really consider myself to be quite an idiot. Um, I, you know, Craig Hennigan is a really smart guy. I'm not as smart as Craig. Uh, you know, I... I I will always sort of consider myself a supervising sound editor and I have started in the last two years to maybe the last year to really be able to hear dialogue well, to be able to mix dialogue. You know, I'm starting to get to where I think I can mix dialogue as well as it I could think I can hear it in my own head. So I I am the last person who would insist on a credit in any way, shape or form. I have a pretty good idea of what I do every on every film. I have a pretty good idea of how important I am to the film. And I don't need a little bit of text at the end of the movie to tell me that. Uh, you know, I used to work for Sidney Lumet. And Sidney used to say, your credit is your paycheck. And, and frankly, that kind of rings true for me. I mean, there is nothing fancy attached to to a couple of lines of text at the end of a movie. But there's a lot fancy attached to a director saying to my face, thank you very much, and and calling me on the next one. I don't worry too much. But I mean, Robert gave me a sound design credit at the head of Pandora's Promise, and, and I was embarrassed. <laughs> Carlo Guillermo Proto talks about why sound people are so important to him in his role as a film director in episode 57. That's one of the things that I learned about the most is pacing and timing. And uh, I mean, your, your sound guy is like your bass player. Like he just like, he, hold, he, like, he just keeps the rhythm down and he just sets the tone. And a good sound person is not just a great technician. They're, they're like, you know, pop psychologists, they're mediators, they're, uh, they're, they work with different like personalities. Like you, uh, a great technical sound person is a dime a dozen. It's, it's all about the personality. And that's how you, people get rehired. And it's the collaboration. And it's like how they're sort of like willing to work. And um, 
it's that chemistry. And a lot of that is attributed to Pablo. Like, um, this sounds horrible. I guess I am the director, but because I, it's such a collaborative process, but I will allow him to stop mm. and to just be like, hold on, I got to reposition a mic. Yeah. And that, those are just some of the things that I think like some directors are just really, uh, in Spanish you say maniatico, what like, um, like just like really... Maniacal. Maniacal, I guess, yeah. <laughs> or just like really... Um, uh, you know, just unwilling and, and not willing to, to do that, to stop a scene for a love. And I think, like, that's just, you know, that uh, to me, it, it was just as much as, like, if my lens fogged up, you know? Like, you can't see anything. My lens is fogged up. I have to clean it. We have to stop. It's the same idea. Thank you for saying this. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and, th- and, that's, and that's the reason why I was so, like, stoked to do this is because you just don't have the opportunity to talk about this stuff. Everybody wants to talk about the photography. Everybody wants to talk about the story and the family and the emotion and all that stuff. But we spent eight months on the film uh, doing the sound, from foley to uh, to sound design to mixing. Really, it was like a, an intense labor of love. Eric Adal told us about the sound design of the film Argo from episode 35. You know, so we kind of took that approach. We're telling the story and creating this emotional experience through the sound. And it's not just cut, 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 cut. Here's something, you know, little punctuation marks here and there. It's like instead it's one big wave that takes you through, you know, many minutes of story. And for the tension of the film, it was kind of a dream. You know, we could take... You know, we did a lot of recording and got a lot of um, uh, native Farsi-speaking extras out to start creating the tapestries of kind of wallas and crowd chants. And, and uh, you know, obviously the opening sequence, the crowds and the chants are, you know, the, the big player. Um, but also later in the film, as our characters are going through the um, Mirabad airport and trying to get on their Swiss air flight to get out of there, we just have these long scenes where they're just waiting for us, we could just, you know, we could take the crowd sounds, the din, the massive humanity, and then just over, instead of just over like five feet of film, over like 200 feet of film, just start slowly sucking it out, you know, sucking the sound out and muting it. So now we're going internal, but it's so slow that you don't notice it or an audience doesn't know that they're being manipulated in that way. And then you just kind of like, you start to hear yourself breathe because the rug has slowly been getting pulled out from under you until you're silent. And then poof, poof, the passport stamp snaps you back into reality and everything's yeah. going again. Oh yeah, I've got a letter from the Ministry of Culture. I love that experience of having long arcs. And, um, you know, that's also something that the re-recording mixers, um, Greg Rudolph and John Wrights, um, completely embraced that. And um, and that's, I'm using the word arc, but it was uh, Greg Rudolph who, when we finished that film, he's like, man, these are like such nice long <laughs> arcs. So I got to give him credit for that term. Mm-hmm. 
for the film Mad Max Fury Road Oliver Matchin was hired to record all the crazy vehicles featured in the film before they were destroyed on set. In episode 34 he told us how he did it. Because my recording location, I had spent a lot of time, first of all, trying to find somewhere that had long enough straights so I could run a vehicle at 40, 50 miles an hour continuously and get a third, you know, one minute of recording without it having to slow down, turn around and come back again. And also then didn't have speed humps in the way and also then didn't have telegraph wires going over the top. For example, trying to bring in the people eater. It's not as big as the duff wagon, but it's still a tall truck. I've got to make sure I can get it, drive it in somewhere and also turn it around to do runs back and forth. And that in itself, you know, just the physical logistics of recording vehicles that size that aren't on a test track or an airfield, which you'd kind of normally do this thing kind of thing is what I did before, just means everything is incredibly slow. You know, that that people eater has got two trailers on it, as you said, and there's the prime mover at the front. Trying to turn that around, you know, kind of takes a good 10 minutes in itself before you then even think about just running it back and then they go, oh, the driver misunderstood. You didn't want me to do that. Okay, let's do that setup again. So it took a very long <laughs> amount of time. Oh, the the bikes actually, they, they became quite a... I had to basically build my own homemade dyno rig to try and record the bikes, um, which went through several different permutations with a lot of help from the bike fabrication guys. We ended up taking the bikes and strapping them onto the tail left of their unit truck, then mounting, so the front wheel was wedged up against the back of the truck and strapped down, and the back drive wheel is then on some rolling wheels to try and record those bikes as much as possible with the engines under load, because we noticed that if you just sit on the bike and rev the engine, it doesn't really sound as Mm-hmm. You know, it's very high end and it's not very interesting sounding. The moment you put a rider on it, it was great. So we were like, well, okay, try and put a 788 in the backpack. But then I've got, you know, issues. I'm not going to get the file metadata input correctly and, you know, being able to strict about starting and stopping for different setups. And it's kind of dangerous. What if the the rider falls off and he's got all these cables coming out the back and something so we kind of built this rig on the back of the trailer and <laughs> furiously we would be spraying water on the wheels, trying to keep the temperature down of the rubber on rubber and also spraying onto the engine. Again, there's no air running across the engine. And then we started getting fans from the special effects department, the kind of silent so-called fans to blow onto the engine at the same time. So that, you know, each, every time you thought recording a vehicle or something should be quick, you would find a very good reason why it was never going to be and it would take a lot of trying to thinking around how you're going to solve that problem with the facilities that you had available and again the, the mechanics and all those guys were great they put aside a lot of extra time you know they had enough you know hard enough work schedule as it was trying to keep the vehicles that they were putting on camera running without worrying about me coming around and then saying right can we do this for this day and you know take up your time because that's only the night before they found out that some uh, stuntman had broken a vehicle and actually they'd been up all night trying to fix it and now I've come to them in the morning saying right now I need to take all your time doing this so it was you know it was a good team effort and it really was important and great that they were so invested in it and that's 
kind of what made it fun to do was it was I was trying to do justice to their work because a lot of these guys had become very attached to their vehicles and would you know kind of become their children and they weren't going to see them again. So they were like keen that we recorded them and did justice to their creations. In episode 21, Ann Krober told us a great story about how Alan Split accidentally became the star of the Academy Award ceremony when he won an Oscar for Black Stallion. Alan, he passed away um, about 19 years ago now. There was three people, Walter Murch, Ben Bird, and Alan, that really changed sound for movies. And Alan had his own style as the other two guys did. He was an incredible artist. I mean, he's also very intuitive, and it was amazing working with him. We were like two kids in a sandbox sometimes. Alan got this incredible notoriety. When he got the Oscar for um, The Black Stallion, we knew ahead of time because it was a special achievement award. And Alan decided that he wouldn't go to Hollywood to get the Oscar. So the night of the Academy Awards, if Alan had gone, you know, he would have just gotten that, gone, you know, said a little bit and left, you know. But what happened is, is that Johnny Carson was the, the host that night. Before the presentation of the next award, which is in the category of sound, I'd like to tell you that the Board of Governors has voted a special achievement award for sound effects editing of the Black Stallion to Mr. Alan Splint. And he made a running gag about Alan the whole night long, where he would come out and he'd say, ladies and gentlemen, Alan Splett, who's going to be uh, getting the Special Achievement Award for Sound, is a little bit late. He made a wrong turn on the Ventura Freeway. He just called and he's coming pretty soon. Ladies and gentlemen, we just heard from Alan Splett. He missed the off-ramp at the Civic Center. And he's somewhere in Ensenada, but he's on his, his way here. Our next presenter is a and child. And then there'd be another update. Alan Spread just stopped off to pick up, you know, this actor that was sick. He's coming pretty soon. It is not Melvin Douglas's fault. He's not here tonight. He was in a carpool with Alan Splett. And then, and then you say, Alan Splett. Oh, Alan Splett had a problem with the, the a flat tire. They're fixing it right now. But he's going to be here. You know, so there'd be these Alan Splett. You know, he's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Until the very end, after the whole show was over, Johnny Carson comes back and he says, "Ladies and gentlemen, first it was George C. Scott, and then Marlon Brando, and now Alan Splett." has stood us up at the Oscars. It always happens. First, George C. Scott doesn't show, then Marlon Brando, and now Alan Splett. <laughs> and, oh, my God. I mean, the amount of publicity he got for that was just unbelievable. I mean, Alan had this amazing ability. He'd run away from publicity, and it would chase after him with more speed and veracity. If you missed any of these the first time around, you can find the full pods on our site, tonbenderspodcast.com or on our SoundCloud feed. Renee and Timothy have asked me to thank all of the listeners for staying with them for these past five years. They have enjoyed interacting with many of you and are looking forward to many more years of podcasting. 
please feel free to reach out to them on Twitter or Facebook to let them know what your favorite episodes were. And please tell your fellow sound-related friends and colleagues about the show. Humans like to listen to recommendations from other humans. Thanks for listening. Renee and Timothy have a lot of great episodes coming your way soon. Keep on rocking in the free world. Date 5T4X out. Thanks for listening to Tone Feathers. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneVendorsPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at ToneVendorsPodcast.com.